Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Margot Douai on her debut novel, Scorched Grace. Margot Douai is a Lebanese-American originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania, now living in Massachusetts. She received her MA in Creative and Life Writing from Goldsmiths and her PhD from the University of Lancaster. She is the author of the true crime poetry project Bandit Queen, the runaway story of Bell Star, and is a founding member of the Creative Writing Studies Organization and an active member of the Sisters in Crime and the Radius of Arab American Writers. She was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award, Ascetica Magazine's Creative Writing Award, and the Ernest Hemingway Foundation's Hemingway Shorts. She currently teaches creative writing at Franklin Pierce University. And today we're going to be talking about Margot's debut novel, which is Scorched Grace. Margot, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much, Neil. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, to converse with you, and to sonically meet all of the listeners. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. This novel is a wild roller coaster ride of arson and embers and passion and suffering and longing and ecstasy and a bloodbath. Um, it's a hard-boiled, inspired, lyrical mystery. So at the heart of it is a whodunit and also a why done it, and who in God's name is Sister Holiday. I like to nest mysteries, but really at the core, this is my tribute to the American-style hard-boiled school of a lone wolf sleuth obsessed with a case and really pushing the limits of their own sensibility of their own investigative methods to try to put some pieces of the puzzle together. So in the UK, the book is out through Pushkin, but perhaps more excitingly, in the US, it's been published by Gillian Flynn's own imprint and was indeed the, the first of those. So tell us how that came about. Yes. So I I still don't really know. <laughs> I'm still recovering from this news and it's it's now my reality. But it's such an astonishing and glorious gift to be published by someone I have admired for a very long time. And I had the great fortune to collaborate with an agent, a literary agent, also based in London, where I did my graduate degree and was very fortunate to do that. And she managed, my literary agent, Laura McDougall with United, managed to get this manuscript in front of Zando, which is a brand new independent publishing company based in New York. And the model for this is to discover new talent using the cultural influence and the loyal community and fan base of some really, let's just say, tastemakers. So Gillian Flynn was tapped by Zando, led by uh, industry titan Molly Stern, who said, 
Gillian, you can have your own imprint and publish whoever you want, as long as you, you know, think that they, you know, have some something big to say and something to offer the publishing industry. So in 2020, I think early, or rather late 2021, Gillian Flynn, author of Gone Girl, you know, sold probably more than 20 million copies of that book, Sharp Objects, Dark Places, showrunner for Utopia, screenwriter for the David Fincher directed film of Gone Girl. And she also wrote Widows with Steve McQueen. She wanted to just create what has become an imprint that the LA Times has dubbed the warped thriller imprint. And she's just passionate about storytelling. She's passionate about bold books. She certainly didn't need to become a publisher. And, you know, I'm not speaking for her. I'm just, you know, basically reporting on what I have learned through doing these events with her and becoming friends with her and collaborating with her. So she's done that uh, interesting pivot from, you know, global phenomenon as a writer to now publisher. So she saw my manuscript in 2022, said she fell in love with Sister Holiday, the contours and complexities of this unexpected sleuth character, and signed me, you know, did it, we did a two-book deal, and this is the Scorched Grace is the first in a trilogy, so they'll have a first look at the third in the trilogy, and it's been off to the races. It's really been an unbelievable experience to just absorb Gillian's insight and her wonderful dark humor and brilliance and you know learn from her what she thinks is really valuable and a lot of that is creative risk and really pushing what we think is interesting profound intoxicating about the books we love so it's a really just a glorious gift and and pushkin has been also tremendous great home for works in translation japanese detective fiction and other really compelling crime fiction titles through their Pushkin Vertigo title. So I'm feeling very, very iconoclastically blessed to be able to work with both publishers. And so Holiday, tell us who she is when we first meet her. When you first meet Holiday in Scorched Grace, she is complaining. <laughs> she is, she's been clocked for being too hard on her students at St. Sebastian's School. There have been anonymous complaints filed against her. And she's sharing with us her interiority through her observation, through her musing, through her griping about her new place in the world. And she's, we learn very quickly that she's changed life, changed her life, traded one life for another. She's moved from Brooklyn, New York to New Orleans, Louisiana. She's 33 years old. She's tatted up from, you know, top to toes, and she's joined this progressive yet Catholic order of sisters in a very small convent, a progressive order, but a Catholic order nonetheless, called the Sisters of the Sublime Blood. They live in a very austere convent, which is a stark contrast to the dripping, lavish world of New Orleans that she finds herself in. And she's an unusual nun, to say the least. She's 33 years old. She's about 40 years younger than every other sister in her order. She is required to cover her tattoos, her ink, with black gloves and a black scarf by her mother superior because the focus should never be on her. The focus should be on God and their work. 
So even in the dripping, scorching, sweltering heat, she's covered up looking like a bit of a cat burglar. And no one really knows quite to make of her. Her sisters don't know what to make of her, except for one, her friend, Sister T. And her students don't really understand her. Her bandmates from her Riot Girl punk band back in Brooklyn don't understand why she's taken this countercultural move to go from being this kind of hot-tempered, hair-trigger, gold-tooth uh, punk rocker to take this very abrupt vow that she's taken a provisional vow to join this this nunnery so she's a mystery to everyone around her and she confiscates the contraband that the students at her school part of her service is teaching guitar and music at saint sebastian school which is attached to their parish and as she is confiscating the the cigarettes and the nips of whiskey students may bring in their bags and keep in their lockers she keeps it for herself and enjoys it with the corporeal vice of a hard-boiled sleuth. And as she, we learn in the first few pages of Scorched Grace, she's sitting in her alley where she's alone, and she's skipping a meeting that she's required to go to, but she nonetheless slips out and is enjoying her <laughs> the cigarettes she nabbed from her student. And she doesn't have, she only has one match, so she has to chain smoke. And as she's sitting there on the steps in her gloves and her scarf, sweating, she notices flames stab through the second floor window of her school and then a flaming body drop with a really ferocious um, sense of doom and menace. And so she runs and finds out that's her friend who's fallen through the window and that's the inciting incident. Or is it? <laughs> it's, this, it's one of the first sparks, but I try to nest and play with these notions of traditional mystery structure. So... We might think that that is the inciting incident of the story, but readers will be looking deeper and finding some more clues within those first pages. And I don't want to talk about why she has become a nun, because part of the story is her backstory, and I don't really want to give anything away. But I want to ask that question in a slightly different way. Why would she become a nun? Why was that even an option? Holiday is many things, and she is in her heart devout. She is genuinely at home with the teachings of the Catholic Church. She has carved a path for herself, despite the fact that she would not be accepted to take a provisional vow or a permanent vow with the Catholic order because she's very proudly gay. She is out. She does not renounce her sexuality, and yet she has found incredible strength and fortitude and clarity within the teachings of the church. She believes in Jesus. She is, you know, transubstantiation is what has given her new life. And so she, despite the fact that it's it's a different time than many people would you know, think of a quote-unquote young person, a 33-year-old, making this unexpected move to join the convent. But to her, it makes absolute sense in a time when she needs some structure and she needs some inner fortitude and she wants to strip away the chaos and focus on something larger than herself and really ultimately belong and feel a sense of belonging, despite 
all of the problems she has with the institutional corruption of a hierarchical and patriarchal and heteronormative and damaging institution. And so that sense of, you know, being at odds with a larger body and yet within the heartbeat and the pulse of it, moving through the work of God is where she finds herself. So she, of course, puts herself right at odds with the church itself, but she becomes one with the word. As you mentioned, there is a a fire at the beginning and a death at the beginning of the novel. And Sister Holiday sets it upon herself to to investigate. She basically becomes the sleuth of this mystery novel, which happens to be set in a convent. So what impediments are there for a nun to be a detective? There is <laughs> the modern luxuries and the technologies and the assistance are not available to Sister Holiday. In some ways, this felt very cleansing for me as a writer to write in some of the my favorite whodunits, which are the Raymond Chandler novels of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, Dashiell Hammett, around the same, same time frame, Mickey Spillane a little bit later. And of course, my, one of my favorite Golden Age detectives, you know, Poirot, who's using reticination in the little gray cells to really put pieces of this riddle together. So for a nun, you know, the way I write this, and it's certainly a fictitious order, I've created the Sisters of the Sublime Blood, but it's essentially anti-capitalist. They have no money, they have no cell phones. So you can't just pull out Google to put some sleuthing momentum or, you know, some put some pep in your step. There's no laptop computer. There's no tablet. There's no chat GPT. So I've, I've really made this order quite austere and modest so that the sleuthing methods almost feel like a hundred years ago, back in time. And I really found that to be so satisfying to write in terms of Putting, you know, way I love to read mysteries because you're constantly scanning and reading between the lines and then also zooming in, zooming out. So the idea of this nun, who again is, you know, she's 33, she's right in the world of, of digital fluency, but taking away some of those tools, which can sometimes be crutches, you know, in just life or writ large, uh, was really fun. And it was also challenging too. In some ways, it I had to write around the fact that everybody around has, you know, everyone around this person has a cell phone, for example, or, you know, some of those just other luxuries that we perhaps take for granted because they've become porous, you know, the boundaries are so porous between technology and life itself. So that is just one, one of the impediments or hurdles for her. And also, you know, she has no car, she can't just hop in her own car and tool around and stake out a suspect or, you know, have a night where she's just watching a door or or some of the other gumshoe methods that we know about in the mystery world. So that that kind of anti-capitalist um, stake in the ground that I've made the Sisters of the Sublime Blood adopt was both really fun to write. And then sometimes I had to, <laughs> I had to really think pretty creatively for some problem solving but ultimately, it feels it feels really good. I, Holiday herself is very DIY in that aesthetic of the post-punk riot girl. You know, she dyes her own hair using household peroxide and baking soda. She 
is a bit of a mess. You know, she doesn't, again, she doesn't have money. None of the nuns do. They grow their own food. They grow their own herbs and vegetables in the garden. They have a couple of chickens and hens. And so it was almost like writing a historical fiction within a contemporary fiction. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the super light collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Margot Duahi, and we're talking about her novel, Scorched Grace. And Margot, New Orleans is the setting of the novel. And it's sort of a bit of a cliche to say New Orleans acts like another character in the novel. God knows I've said that enough times in the past, but you know, New Orleans really is one of those cities where it impinges on the story. So tell us something about the setting and why New Orleans. Absolutely. I love place in mysteries, whether it's the Legos of Braithwaite's, you know, my sister, the serial killer, or, you know, the settings of Patricia Highsmith, or, you know, I love place. I love setting in mysteries specifically, because I think topography and the narrative cartography can act as a bit of a Rorschach test for characters, seeing how they move around the space, how they react to the climate itself, the heat or the cold, you know, in Scandinavian Noir. 
So I really took setting very seriously. And I lived in New Orleans for two years. I had the great fortune to live there for two years when I had a, uh, a job down there. And I really fell in love with it as well as its paradoxes and contradictions. So it's a place of extremes, just like noir. So I felt like in a way it was its own noir character. So it's very intense. It gets very, very hot, very humid, dripping. And then you have these storms that move with cyclical frequency and are growing stronger every year as more wetlands wash away and as climate change intensifies. So you have this place that is so important. In my opinion, it's the most American, most important American city, more so than New York City or Los Angeles or anything. It's the birthplace of jazz, Creole, Cajun, you know, Black excellence. It is truly an important port city, Gulf city, and a home of culture, and also challenges with you know, different recoveries, uh, plans after Hurricane Katrina, and power, powerlessness, uh, unfortunate gentrification, as well as, you know, again, the weather itself. So it's a fierce character. It's a ferocious character. It's a seductive character all its own. And really, my method into it was more of the understory. So like looking under the leaves, looking under the bark, you know, peeling things away, rather than leaning into those what I find really horrifying tropes that are very reductionist and very flattening around, you know, Bourbon Street and Carnival, which of course is there and very much part of the novel. Masquerade, deception, music, rebirth, jazz, improvisation, new life. It's all part, they're all leitmotif in the novel. But I really needed these characters to interrogate those very ideas and inhabit those very ideas in a truly idiosyncratic way. So you have the other main character of Maggie Raveau. She hates the heat and she's constantly complaining. And, you know, her method of finding her serenity is through her olfactory senses. She's an arson investigator. She has, you know, her own challenges, her own arc. Sister Holiday, she mentions the heat, but she has a very particular relationship with fire and burning and and all of the ecosystem elements of fire. So New Orleans itself is, is a character that deserves respect, and in many ways, very liturgical, like the acts of God, moving with incredible force, the force majeure. So I really wanted to do it justice. And, and it's some, you know, you have to take some risks. And like any character, the character must be allowed to make mistakes and live and stretch out and articulate itself in some ways that might seem surprising. But I also love studying it. I go back, just finished the second novel in the series, Blessed Water. So I was back just listening to the city again, listening to the frogs communicate with each other, the drops of rain, to the ambient sounds of music wherever you go, to the revelry to the chaos, to the voices, to the language. So it's it's just a, a really seductive and, and impossible to define city. Another one of the characters, one of the students, Prince Dempsey, who's a, a delinquent, and he lives in a trailer, but not a trailer in a trailer park. Tell us what's specific about where he lives. So Prince lives in the outskirts of New Orleans, past Metairie, and... He lives in one of the 
trailers that was provided by the government to people after Hurricane Katrina, much later than would be hoped for, it was discovered that these these emergency trailers contained formaldehyde, which is incredibly dangerous. And it just underscored the disastrous effects that you know poverty have on just human life itself. So they were you know, cheaply thrown together. They were not considered. You know, of course, we have great respect for our first responders. But I wanted to highlight this trailer itself because Prince is a, a he is a delinquent. He and Sister Holiday spar. They spar royally because for for many reasons that I won't give too much away. But she sees a lot of herself in this mischievous kid, and. He's also an adult. He's had to be held back from his classes. He's failed quite a bit. He has PTSD from being a baby during, you know, an infant during the storm when he was trapped on the roof with his mom. And he rescues dogs. He rescues pit bulls. His beloved companion is Bonton. But it was really important for me to to center just the effects of poverty on on people's narrative arc as well. And because this book is an intersectional book, I like to think about the ways that class and race and gender and sexual identity and health status, you know, Prince is also, he has diabetes. And so that is very influential in his own life. So, and also within other characters and the way they relate to him. So his trailer is just one small example of the fact that, you know, folks that are struggling they have just an uphill battle in so many ways. And so for Sister Holiday to find the empathy, the common ground with him, and she realizes that she has so much more in common than with him than she would readily admit. So <laughs> I, I don't like to think in terms of foil, because I think that can be, it just doesn't serve the expansiveness of the ways characters catalyze discoveries in one another. And I really like to think of this as a very robust ensemble cast. Most of the characters will appear in both books two and three. So getting to know Prince, seeing where he lives, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a car, a Vertiginous car chase there as well, but really getting a sense of his life and then how that might color the way he moves through the world was really, really crucial for me to narrativize and to write. Just one more thing. You mentioned that the novel itself is your own homage to the sort of classic American hard-boiled novels. And Sister Holiday herself is a sees herself as a detective, as a sleuth, because she herself loves those sort of things as well and is influenced by them. So perhaps tell me some of those books that were a particular influence on the novel. Oh, absolutely. So then, you know, of course, the hard-boiled definition is a private eye and you know, but there's a lot of elasticity there. So really starting with Raymond Chandler, who, even though incredibly problematic character of P.I. Marlowe, who's quite, you know, viciously sexist and racist and homophobic in many ways. I really just, when I was reading him, I found his contradiction so interesting. And as the great writer and scholar Megan Abbott has pointed out, that a lot of his brutishness is kind of rooted in gender panic and post-world confusion about 
masculinity and masculine, you know, masculinity and hard boiled and the way they overlap. So really the works of, you know, Chandler with P.I. Marlowe. So long goodbye. The um, the big sleep. Goodbye, my lovely. His short stories like Red Wind are fantastic. And Dashiell Hammett, absolutely a huge fan of Hammett. Sam Spade and you know, Spade and Archer in Maltese Falcon. I also love his short stories like uh, Thin Man, Slippery Fingers. And Walter Mosley coming in the 80s and the 90s with Devil in a Blue Dress and his Easy Rollins. And then, of course, Sue Grafton, Sarah Paretsky, and a little less hard-boiled, but in terms of staking claim in a queer hard character, Catherine Forrest with her Kate Delafield mysteries. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? I would love that. Pain is evidence of growth. The ache means we're changing. And everybody is capable of change, even me. But that doesn't mean I always got it right. Whenever I was punished, my task was to clean the massive stained glass windows of the church. I'd climb up on our rickety ladder and shine the glass, pane by intricate pane. Eleven in total, bold blue, coral, fern green, and my favorite, sanguine, the color of sacred wine, the living red of a singing tongue during vespers. Our stained glass told stories from the Old and New Testaments, Moses akimbo, parting the cerulean sea, the evangelists, Matthew a wingman, Mark is a lion, Luke is a flying ox, and John an eagle. The slow motion trauma of the stations of the cross, adoring angels floating above the manger during the birth of Christ our Lord, holding luminous harps like jewels in their small hands. So beautiful, it hurt to look sometimes. Like watching people in church as they kneel and pray, howl and lose balance. I see people at their absolute lowest. I hear people beg God and Mary and Jesus for second chances. One planet away from their spouses or kids next to them in the pew, or so alone they've thinned to ghosts. And we're always there, us nuns, to witness, to hold space for miracles in the terror, in the boredom, in the wretched gore of life, to take it in, to watch your hands tremble, validate your questions, honor your pain. You never see us seeing you. Nuns are slippery like that. So I've been talking to Margot Doahi. We've been talking about her book, Scorched Grace which is out in the UK from Pushkin Vertigo. Margot, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much, Neil. And it's just an absolute honour and a privilege to share this work with you, to share my art. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.